Good morning. morning. Welcome to those of you online as well this morning. About seven, eight years ago, I sat in a room with a group of leaders. Um, I shouldn't say sat in a room. We got together over the course of a year um, to look at the mission vision of our church. And it's when we did things like create our core values, a new set of core values, renewed set of core values. And you look at those on our website, you'll see them in our, in our mission statement uh, and some other important ways to talk about the mission and vision of our church as a congregation. And at the end of that time, <clears throat> this was, as I say, about seven or eight years ago, they asked me, or maybe I asked myself, I don't remember, to write a, what they call a manifesto, I guess, in, in, in um, you know, communications speak, but really a, a, a summary statement, maybe a paragraph uh, at most, that would help to encapsulate all the work that we did in these core values, mission statement, etc., which was at the time printed on the back of the brochure. So I want to return to it this morning. Here's what it said. What would it be like, what would it feel like to be around people who really knew you and loved you. And to be, and to join with those friends on a mission about the most important things. The struggle for hope. The love of God. You know, purpose in living. This is what we were made for. And nothing else truly satisfies Lives are at stake. Families are at stake. Matters of eternity. People inviting people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. That was and is our mission statement. Now, that's a lofty um, picture. And it was meant to be lofty and inspirational. But at the same time, it's not unreachable because this is what We, I'm talking about followers of Jesus Christ. This is what we were made for. And nothing else really will satisfy. In other words, nothing else in that that you give yourself to. Okay? What do we give ourselves to? Whether it's your family even. Or your career. You know, or your health. Nothing else that you give your very best to in the short life that we have actually truly satisfied. This is what we were made for. The gospel of Jesus Christ, to this series, and the title of your bulletin changed, is getting at, is a, is a, is a agent of change, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is an agent of change. It's not, just a, and it's not just a singular experience. Like I became a Christian at X point. I was changed. No. It is a lifelong experience of change. And if you are not changing, right, that whether you've been a Christian for a month or for, you know, decades, if you are not changing, I want to suggest to you that it is not, the problem is not with the Christian faith, okay? Sometimes we think that. I talk to people all the time, and they have great, you know, um, uh, discussions and, and, and reasons and statements about what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that, and, and I'm talking about Christians, Non-Christians, too, they may believe God doesn't, you know, love the world or care about this or isn't involved. But I'm talking about Christians. Why the Christian faith is not working, I would say to you, the problem is not the Christian faith. It is not 
the gospel. The problem is me, and the problem is you, and our practice, or not uh, lack of practice, of the Christian faith, right? And my hope in this short series, just in these three weeks as we begin the year together, is that more of our eyes, mine too, would be open both to what God is already doing in the life of this church. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. Some of you might say, well, you know, to be honest, I'm not going to raise my hand, but God hasn't done a work in my life. In fact, my life is in some ways worse off, relatively speaking. I'm not talking about money or, you know, material possessions, but I'm saying your heart is in a worse place, um, your marriage is in a worse place, your sense of hope is in a worse place, your sense of spiritual authority or power that we were just talking about, Jason was talking about a minute ago, that's in a worse place, right? If, if that's the case... My hope is that God will, will um, open our eyes first to see that God is actively working in the life of this church. There are people, maybe in your row, maybe in your section, maybe in your small group, you don't know about who, for whom God is changing their life all over this church. Children, students, adults. But my hope is that God will open all of our eyes, not only more to what he is doing right here in front of us, but what he wants to do in your life and what he wants to do in the life of this church in the year that we're beginning together. So we're looking at this morning's message. It's from Matthew chapter 9. You have a copy of the Bible. Open it up or turn it on. Just a handful of verses, Matthew 9, 35 to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and a message titled, A Changed Life. A Changed Life. Matthew 9, 35 begins with these words. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus then called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. A changed life. In these verses, perhaps familiar, or at least this account to us, let me tell you what it's not. It's not the original calling of the disciples, right? When we use that term, the calling of disciples, which happened a few chapters earlier in, earlier in, the, in, in this overall story or this narrative, when Jesus is you know, walking along the Sea of Galilee and says, hey, James and John, follow me, or you know, Peter and Andrew, follow me, or you know, Nathaniel, follow me, etc. It's not the calling of the disciples, what you're seeing here. What you're seeing here is not the calling of the disciples, but the charge to the disciples, and really to the church, we become the disciples, to actually start doing in the community what Jesus has been doing in their communities, largely in this case around the Sea of Galilee, in the last two years. It was very important. We read the Gospels. And, you know, John and James and Peter and Andrew and Bartholomew and, you know, and, and, and Simon and Judah, so they, they, they grabbed, you know, go shop and get me some lunch and, and set up the, 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 you know, set the people in groups of 50. I mean, they were doing some things that Jesus told them to do. They were handlers. They were helpers. They were the roadies in a manner of speaking. But here, Jesus says, now I want you to start doing what I have been doing, right? 
I want you to. Jesus then gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, over the course, of when, you, when we read that, you and I read that, it doesn't really impress us, maybe. Because for the course of time, now 2,000 years, you know, these men and women, too, there are women in the, in, the, in the overall disciples of Jesus, you know, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Salome, and, and there's lots of them, named and not named. These groups of people have become, over time, we've venerated them, if I can use that word, right? That is to say, we in our minds, we look at James and John and Philip and, and Thomas and, 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 and Judas and, and Thaddeus, and we say, we put halos around these guys in our imagination. They are people who, who are risen above over the course of time. They're superstars, right, in many cases, but this is where the problem is. Because in this passage, right, there is a, these were not those kinds of people at all. And you're supposed to read this, there, there's a sense, if you were the first readers of this, that the, 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 the sheer shock and implausibility that Jesus, if he is the, the son of God starting this great movement called the church, that he's going to pick a handful of people to carry on his work. These would be very unlikely people to, to have chosen, right? I mean, Peter, I'm not going to read the names there in the next verse. I mean, we know Peter, if he had an obituary, it would say the very first thing would be doubted the Lord, denied that he ever knew him. Matthew was a tax collector, which is a euphemism for an extortionist. They were the lowest of the low. I wouldn't have picked him. Thomas was the... I mean, you guys know this stuff, okay? I hope in those um, characters, you see yourselves. And if you miss that point, right? The implausibility of it, you miss the very point of what's going on in this passage, right? That's like, you know, I read the Bible, but it doesn't change my life. Because you're missing the point, Spirit, open my eyes, right? We cannot live the life that God has called us to live. We cannot, as a church, do, back to this mission statement, what God is calling us to do unless, unless we are changed and being changed, okay? This passage tells us how. Three things quickly, right? Number one, the agent of change is God's love, okay? The agent of change is God's love. Again, stick with me in this passage, right? It's very intentional. This is the beginning of the launch, not only of the 12 apostles slash disciples, but really it's the church. It's, they're a stand-in for you and me. When you get to Matthew 28, go you into all the world, create, uh, uh, teaching them, that's everybody, from every nation, right? So in other words, it's all of us. This is the work of the church. There's no hierarchy or variation or, or, or degrees of importance. We're all called. And let's just, let's, just, let's just get over the fact that we're all, in a manner of speaking, tax collectors and extortionists and deniers and doubters. Get past that because it's not about you. It's not about me. But the natural impulse, let's start with all the healing. Because when you look at this passage and you go, well, that sounds great. But I am, I've been a Christian for X years. I've never seen anybody, you know, um, you know, in a physical healing, even though it happens. I don't see that happening all over the place. It's not the focus of this passage. It was Jesus' natural impulse to heal the sick, 
to, in some cases, even raise the dead, to, um, you know, help extend people's limbs that were, that were uh, imperfect, that to, 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 to do physical sickness. Why did he do that? Because Jesus was the kingdom of God incarnate. Now, this isn't my message, so let me do this really quick. When we talked about this in the miracle series, when Jesus did the miracles, he was not suspending reality when he walked on water or when Peter did. That's what we think of it. It's a suspension of the natural order. The biblical um, worldview says that Jesus was restoring the natural order, not suspending the natural order. In other words, yes, you and I live in a world where people don't walk on water and we get sick and we have all kinds of limitations, but that's the consequences of sin. And Jesus is saying in his life, it was, it was impossible for him not to deal with sickness and pain and physical deformity because he is the living, breathing kingdom of God. He's saying, listen, this is where it's all headed. We're all going to a kingdom where there was no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. All of those things are temporary. They are not what life is the way God has created it to be. And he could hardly not, by opening his mouth and touching things, he was giving you and me video trailers, so to speak, uh, snapshots of the kingdom that was coming. That's still true. But when he gets past that, okay, what really moves his heart? When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them. What moved his heart was not the wheelchair, was not the cleft palate. It was the loneliness, the spiritual emptiness, the loss of hope in the human heart. That's what moved it. And this too, right? They were harassed and helpless. This too is a disease. And this too is a disease actually that has much greater consequences. Listen. Jesus did not die to make us healthy. Right? I'm all about being healthy. But every person in this room is going to die a natural death. Right? No one's going to live forever in this life in the way that we are. Jesus did not die to make us healthy. Listen, Jesus did not die to make us wealthy. Jesus did not die to make all people middle class. Okay. Now that sounds silly, but you know, sometimes I read articles and things about the Christian faith, and we ought to be about um, righting the wrongs of the world, income equality, racial equality. All these things are important. But let me tell you something. Jesus also said this, the poor you will have with you always. Death and disease you will have with you always, because that is not the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had compassion because of the law, those were, they were hurting and they were harassed. It's Jesus Christ came, he died to heal our hearts, to forgive us of our sins, and to reconnect us with the living God for which we had been unconnected and people today are unconnected in the world we live in. That's why. B.B. Warfield, some of you wouldn't know the name, he was one of the great theologians, uh, American theologians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, died about the early 1920s. But he wrote this paper that's still available. It's only 30 pages long or so. And he decided to do this. So I want to look in the Bible. And there was these big debates, maybe still, but among theologians. You know, how do you make sense of Jesus? Because he's, he's all God. He's the son of God, so I, I can't identify with that. But he's also perfect humanity. He's not faking it when he's sad, or he's not faking it when he's tired. And, you know, he's, he's all God and he's all man. We call this the incarnation. It's one of the great mysteries of the scriptures. 
And he said, I want to remove this discussion of the incarnation from all this highfalutin um, theological speak. And I want to say, what can we learn about God through the emotional life of Jesus in the Bible? So he wrote this, did this study. It's the paper you can still see. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And all he did was say, I'm just going to take a hard study of the Gospels and look at the emotions. This is just a a, a, a snapshot of it, or a, a segment. The emotion we find most frequently attributed to Jesus, whose life was a mission of mercy, is compassion. The emotional movement was aroused by Jesus by the sight of individual distress, as by the sight of individual distress, as by the spectacle of man's universal misery. Yes, he was focused on the wheelchair and the cleft palate but he was looking for something deeper. These diseases were looked upon by him as themselves rooted in a spiritual destitution. It was his, this spiritual destitution which most deeply moved him, right? The agent of change is the love of God. What most captured Jesus' imagination what most captured is today is people living without hope. People living without the knowledge of the love of God which is available to them, which is, not, which is as close to them as their very breath, but they don't know it. Okay, That's what moves him. I listened to this podcast um, this week with the writer. It was an interview with the writer Anne Voskamp. Anyone ever heard of Anne Voskamp? She's a Canadian writer, and she's a Christian uh, uh, writer, and she wrote this book almost 10 years ago called 1,000 Gifts. In the book, 1,000 Gifts, was the story of her crawling out of a hole in a manner of speaking. What she did was, she said, I'm just going to spend a year as an experiment. I want to catalog. You know, she wrote it down. It started as a blog, this book. The goodness of God and the grace of God in my everyday life. Right? In her case, she was homeschooling kids. At this time, she was a housewife. She was also a writer, and she had, she had six kids. She said, I want to just catalog my life, but I want to be looking intentionally for the grace of God in this um, thing. That's what the book, A Thousand Gifts, that's what she writes. Now, the book went on to sell over a million copies. And the writer said to her, excuse me, the interviewer said, Ann, let me ask you a question. Were you surprised that this book sold a thousand copies? And she said, absolutely, I was surprised. I never, I never dreamed a lot of people would read this, even if it was ever published. She said, to be honest with you, Martin, that was the guy who was doing the interview. She said, to be honest with you, I did this as a, as a, as a survival technique. She said, my story is, I, was, I became a Christian as a kid in a Bible club in a neighborhood Bible club. But the house I grew up in, my parents didn't reinforce the faith. I didn't really have, I, di I didn't have any, she didn't say this word, but I, I wasn't really discipled. I didn't really have a lot of nurture. Of, I was a Christian. But by the time I got to college, my fears began to overwhelm my life. And my anxiety, I had some real anxiety issues. And by the time I had my first kids, I was a train wreck, right? Overwhelmed by fear. And I did this as a technique to find my way out, right? And he said, well, you know, Ann, I really enjoyed your book. But he said, well, I felt when reading it that you were actually having a conversation with yourself. 
And she started laughing. She goes, that's exactly what I was doing. She said, I can still remember in those months that I was writing the book, you know, whether I was opening the mail or making dinner, I would be mumbling scriptures to myself. In other words, I was preaching the gospel to, and my kids or my husband once in a while would say, what are you doing, right? And then she said this, here's the point. As Christians, we need to hear the gospel over and over again if you want it to really change you. I see myself as the chief of sinners in regular need of the grace of God. Do you? Do I? Or is it just something that happened some time ago in my life? 1 John 4.19. Listen carefully. These are familiar words. We love because he first loved us. Now listen to it again. We love ourselves because he first loved us. Listen, don't even bother thinking about your neighbors, even your family, or the lost and dying world. If the love of God has not captured your imagination, is not capturing your imagination, right? Most of us, we don't get past ourselves on the best of days. We love only because he loves us. The agent of change is the love of God. Second thing this passage tells us, the power of change is prayer. This is a whole message in itself. But let me say this. There's only one command in this passage, the five verses or whatever we just read. He doesn't tell you to go anywhere, doesn't tell you to do anything, doesn't say to tell anybody anything. Okay? Even in verse 10, he says he gave them authority to heal, but doesn't tell them to do it. The only command in this passage is to ask for help. Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest. It's a metaphor for Jesus, right? Ask the Lord of the harvest. And he, by the way, he's not talking about wheat, corn, okay? <laughs> I think you know that. He's talking about people. Ask the Lord of the harvest. To send out workers, namely you. That's what he's to these men and, and, and these uh, disciples. Into the harvest field. The number one reason that some of us, you and me, are not changing the way that we want to be changing. We're not, exp- I'm not talking about whether or not you're a Christian. I'm not, my hope isn't, my life isn't filled with the kind of hope I want it to be. The anxiety's gotten the better of me. I have all kinds of fears and failures and I'm not actually doing, the, the reason I'm not changing is, not, is because you do not have an increased dependence on the only person who has the power to change your life. That's what he's saying. He picked people, we're all like this, the tax collector, the denier, the doubter, Right? The, these men that were largely failures, remember that one time they sent them out on their first mission and they come back and this guy comes back and goes, Jesus, we, we, we asked your disciples to do this, that, and the other thing and they were all firing blanks. Can you help me? Okay? It was a, a, on purpose because the only way you can do it, the only way that I can do it is an increased dependence on the only person who has the power to change your life. Right? We take ourselves far too seriously. Now what I mean by that is 
when it comes to living the Christian life or being the church of Jesus Christ, we all want to talk about our, to ourselves our failures, our imperfect intelligence, our lack of experience. I've screwed up my life so bad that, okay? We take ourselves far too seriously and we take the living God far um, uh, not seriously enough. All right. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send you out. The early church was born in prayer meetings for this very reason. Many, many verses. I'm only going to read one. Acts 4, 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting, this is the early church, was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Right? Now let me tell you something quick about this verse. After they prayed. And you can see a dozen examples of this in the book of Acts alone. Okay? There's, there's a time for the prayer closet, but it's after they prayed, as in husband and wife, and parent and child, and friend and friend and small group, and, and congregation, right? That's where the power of God comes in. After they prayed. I would love to see, right? Wouldn't you love to see this place shaken, whatever that means, okay? Wouldn't you love to see for, for this congregation right now to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean, Pastor? Is that the, I'm not talking about kooky, crazy um, stuff, some of the stuff we see, okay? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means that the, the life that we have been called to live, we begin to live it because the power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is called in the book of John, comes into our minds, comes into our hearts, comes into our attitudes, and works its way out in our fingertip. And the ability to do the impossible, the fruits of the Spirit, whatever it might be, the demonstrative gifts, they come into our life, and we, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And then they spoke the word of God boldly, right? That's how the world has changed. You want that? For your life, for the life of this church? Let's pray just with me, just for a minute. I'm gonna read a verse of scripture, but I want us to think about it. And if you wanna just close your eyes, if you wanna stand up, you wanna kneel down, but let these words, why should we not be, in a manner speaking, shaken? Why should we not, in a manner of, being, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why should we not be able to speak the word of God more boldly in our lives? This is a prayer from the New Testament. Let's apply it. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, Paul says, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Why is that important? It's his power, not yours. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Father, help us in this room today.
to know your love and to know your power in our lives and in your church where we need it most today. In Jesus' name, amen. The agent of change is God's love, right? You've got to preach. You really want to change? You've got to learn to preach the gospel as a way of life into your heart, into your mind, into your marriage, right? That's the only way we change is God's love. We love ourselves, our spouse, our kids, our lost world because he first loved us. Second, the power of change is prayer, right? Stop taking yourself so seriously and start taking God more seriously. And lastly, God's gift to the world is you and me, okay? This is, the, this is the real meaning of this passage, right? This is what it means. You're supposed to crack a smile when Jesus says to the 12 disciples, go change the world and do in the world what I have done in your company, right? But this is what the Bible says. One last passage and we're done. John 4, parallel passage. You'll see these same images used Verse 35 to 38. Don't you have a saying, Jesus and his disciples, part of the larger story of the woman at the well. It's still four months until the harvest, right? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest, okay? Not talking about wheat, talking about people. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together, saying something strange. Thus the saying, quotes another saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, namely Jesus himself, and I and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What's he saying? The distressed People of the world constitute a harvest, but ready, ready for what he's saying in this passage. The harvest just needs to be reaped. He's not asking for experts. He's not asking for leaders. He's not asking for, you know, superstars. He's saying, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest simply to send forth workers because most of the work's already been done. There's already, you're going to reap the benefits. And then he quotes these sayings. He's, he's being very clever. It's almost like, you know, he's taking a, a word off the street. It has been said that, you know, in four, in four months comes the harvest. That's what it says, which is another way of saying, you know, things don't happen overnight. Rome was not built in a day. That's what he's saying. Four months, you've heard it said, the saying goes. And that's true. The normal patterns of life, that's just how it works, you know? You know, some, in many cases, some people do all the hard work, and other people sometimes reap the benefits, right? Right? Well, we could talk about this in a number of analogies, right? That one that's hot topic today is, you know, the 1%. Uh, you know, X people are doing all the hard work, and some people are reaping the benefits. I mean, there's a number of ways to talk about this, right? But what he's saying is, listen, in the economy of God, the natural laws are suspended, right? And in this case, the, the, the plowman is overtaken 
by the reaper. Now, that doesn't make sense if you're a farmer. That never happens. You, you, you plant your crops, and four months later or more, you send out the reapers. But Jesus says in this economy, we're talking about a spiritual harvest, all the hard work is done. God's not asking you to, you know, um, you know, become some super spiritual giant. He's done the work. What he's saying is stop taking yourself so seriously. Start taking him seriously and get out of your own way and start harvesting the people that are around you, right? God's gift to the world. It's like, it's you, right? It's me. That's what it is. And the question is, are we open? Are we serious? Do we want it with his authority? That's what verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1 says. Our lives become instruments of his compassion and his effective action in the world. Let me close with a quick story. I've told you guys this story before, here and there, about some homeless guys that are around my um, house. They're around your house too, probably, depending on where you live. But uh, it's up there on, you know, near, um, you know, East and Winton, that area. And this one guy I saw many times, I've told you his story, and he's a vet, Iraq war, been through all kinds of stuff, and we've had many conversations. And I didn't see him for probably six months or five, four months. Just saw him about a month ago, except he's missing a leg now. Had his leg amputated, and he's got many problems. I think diabetes is one of them, but we're just talking. I get him a meal. And he asked me for something. I go and get it, and I come back, and it was, now it was just me and him alone. Was kind of the traffic was low, and he said, you look at me differently. I've noticed you're looking at me. Like he was kind of mad or ashamed or something. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I, I've noticed you're looking at me differently. And I said, well, listen, maybe I am. But I said, it's not because, I said, you don't look good. And I don't mean you're not handsome. He laughed. I said, you you don't look, you, you look like the life is, is draining out of you, okay? And he got quiet. And then he said to me, he goes, I do listen to you sometimes. I want you to know when you say stuff to me. That's what you'd probably say to me, right? right. <laughs> he said, I, I do listen. And I said, yeah? And he said, I've been thinking about that story you told me. And I thought, oh, what story is that? I go, what story is that? And he goes, the one about the guy who got caught in the flood. Some of you guys know this story? Okay. And, I, and this is the story. I'll tell you it real quick. You know, it's the guy who, it's sort of the analogy. The guy who is, he gets caught in a flood. You know, it's like two guys at a bar. But this guy gets caught in a flood, okay? Guy gets caught in a flood. And all of a sudden, the waters are rising and rising and rising and rising. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, he's, he's praying and praying. And, 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 and a boat comes by. And the two guys go, get in the boat. Okay, some of you guys know this story now. My details are probably different from your cousin who told it to you. But anyway, here we go. Get in the boat. And the guy goes, no, no, I'm all taken care of. You know, God's going to take care of me. And he keeps floating down. Now he's sort of in the river because everything's a river. And, and he goes over a bridge. The guy throws over the rope. Get on a rope. And the guy goes, no, I'm okay. God's going to take care of me. And then, I added this detail, a uh, helicopter comes in, right? <laughs> and, uh, and down comes the rope, you know, from the helicopter, the seals, you know. Get in. You're the last one. The guy says, I'm all set. God's going to take care of him. Of course, he dies. Gets up there to Jesus, St. Peter, you know, Mary, whatever your story version of the story you've heard, right? Gets up there, and he hears God, and, says, and he says, uh, um, 
God, what gives? And God says, what are you talking about? He goes, man, I'm dying out there. I've been praying, and, 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 and what happened? I just, I drowned. He said, I sent you the guy on the boat. I sent you the guy with the, you know, you get the idea. And he said, uh, I go, I was really got sobered up. And I said, Chris, you're right. You are that guy. And I said, let me tell you something. This might be the last time you, this, this might be the last time you see me. I was choked up. A few minutes later, he says, wanted me to wheel him to the um, bus stop. He, won't, he never takes a ride. He's very stubborn. And, but he wanted me to wheel him to the bus stop. So I wheeled him to the bus stop. Wegmans East Ave. And I'm leaving. And I'm, I walk away. And just as I'm walking away, he yells out my name. I'm 20 feet from him. I turn around. He's sitting in his wheelchair. He said, Rob! I turn around. He said, I love you. Now, I've known this guy for two years now. Six hours later, whatever it was, I'm laying in bed, and I'm thinking about those words. This is the thought I had. Those are the most meaningful words I've heard in a while. In other words, I mean, in a good way. But it wasn't just because they were affirming, okay? It was because in those words, I heard the pleasure of God in a manner of speaking. I experienced a joy and I said, this is what I was made for. And nothing else re- like it other than that really satisfies. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God and Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for everyone in this room. Lord, we, we come to you. I'm confident with hungry hearts in this room. Because like Ann Voskamp being a Christian by itself doesn't mean we're full or we're healed or we're done. Help us, Lord, every person in this room to open our minds, our hearts, our lives to the only agent of change there is, which is the love of God. Help us, Lord, I pray, to get hungrier for the gospel. Help us, Lord, I pray, to be people in a church who pray more and expect less of ourselves and more of you. And help us, Lord, to have our eyes opened to what you are really doing around us and simply to join you. In Jesus' name, amen.